Well, uh, once again, welcome. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, we are closing our Heckler series today. Uh, our series, we've done six weeks on shame together, and, and I say this with, um, with, with so much heart. I've I, I never been more glad to close a series in my entire life. Uh, this thing, this thing, this thing ha has been a grind. Um, our church has really put in the effort. We have sat, we have self-reflected, uh, we have shared with one another. I want to make sure and appreciate everybody who shared their, their kind of their shame stories with me. Uh, I am, I am not, uh, in any way do I deserve to hold that space that uh, many of you allowed me to hold with you. So, so thank you very much for, uh, for allowing that. Um, today is going to be different because the, the reality is when it comes to shame, uh, nobody here is fixed. Like no matter how much effort you put in, no matter how much time you put in, no matter how many books you, you read, or, or even if you went to every single sermon in the series, uh, nobody's going to leave here all better. What we are going to leave here, though, is a lot more aware aware of how shame uh, intersects with our stories, aware of some of the, the shame that maybe has been passed down generationally, aware of some habits that we've got into that are really numbing us to keep us from looking at the effect of shame in our life. And I hope most importantly, aware of the way that the spiritual enemy uses shame to, uh, to lock us in place and to freeze us as we are with supposedly no way out. And so today's talk's a challenge, if I'm, if I'm just being authentic, because I've already had people tell me, like, hey, I put in time, I feel like I'm up to here, please tell me you're just going to yank me out of here and send me off down to, you know, rainbows and ponies and everything's better. And that's, uh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen, because that's just not how the human condition works. And one thing here at Kessid, we, we really try really hard to be as authentic about, uh, about that and about the truth around how God wants to walk with us, even sometimes when we feel up to here. So I was praying about it, and I was working with the team, and I started thinking about this idea of, uh, of having what I'm going to call a future-facing faith, of recognizing that although everything's not better, although, although all the stories aren't put back in the boxes that we pulled out, that there is a, a core biblical truth that we as Christ followers or people even who are spiritually curious are looking not just at what has happened or at the past, but, but more towards the freedom that a future-facing faith brings. And that's what I'm going to teach on today, and that's what I'm going to bring. But my goal is to give us an orientation. My goal is to give us a, a way in which we can, as a community, look towards what Jesus wants to do with all the stuff that we have brought up. Some of it has been really heavy. Some of it has been really freeing. Either of those things, as long as we're oriented towards Christ, I believe that every single day we can find more and more freedom, more and more wholeness, more and more joy, more and more peace, more and more healing, more and more restoration, and so on and so on and so on. As long as we are focused upon that future and that faith that God has for us. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, I know you might not think that feels very hopeful, but I think you might be surprised if you're willing to look at your own orientation right now, like I have had to the last couple talks, and really ask, okay, God, what is it you have me looking forward to? And even what is it that you want me to, to face? What is it that you want me to overcome? What is it that you want me to let go? Because if we can do that individually and together, then I believe we can continue to experience freedom from shame on a daily basis. Amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, I want to start off because I find the Bible fascinating with a story that uh, 
that I have always found interesting just because of its kind of, kind of oddity. Uh, since we've been talking about Elijah and his connection with Moses, I thought I would tell us a little bit more about Moses during the time when the people of Israel were freed from bondage. So there was generation after generation after generation of national bondage to the people of Egypt. And God comes along, and we've all seen Prince of Egypt, right? And he says, let my people go. And then songs are sang, and all of a sudden the people are free. Okay, and they're free, and they, they follow Moses out into the desert. And all they know, that first generation, is that they're no longer slaves. They don't really know anything else. All they know is that they're no longer bound by the rules that did exist, when to be at work, how to show up, how to pay homage to the ones who ruled, how to behave, how to, how, to, how to function in that society. All they know is that they just went from living in this really terrible place to living kind of in this unknown place. And so in a very real way, it's a lot like what we're doing as a community. If we're willing to drop some of our shame, it isn't like all of a sudden we're headed somewhere that we get. We're simply oriented out into the unknown that God is calling us out into. And that's right where these people find themselves. We have talked many, many times about how uh, that works, about how we go out into this place and how shame cycles and shows up eventually if we're not prepared for it, how terrible that can be. And so we're going to pick up with the people of Israel out in the unknown, following Moses to somewhere they've never been, and eventually they get frustrated. Numbers 21, verse 4 and 5. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now this is a great example of a shame cycle returning of how it often finds its way back into our stories, and that when you're not prepared, you eventually find your way back into complaining about the same thing that you were always complaining about before. The people of Israel couldn't stand living underneath the people of Egypt. They couldn't stand the food and the death and the harm and everything else. And they finally have freedom where all that goes away, and so they just decide to complain about the one thing they can, and they don't even complain that good. Like, what a weird line. Like, why have you brought us up out of Egypt, the place where you were being murdered and used as slaves, to die in the wilderness? Well, wait a minute. Nobody's died. You're just, you're just following God into the unknown. And then this is their childhood national tantrum. For there is no food and no water. And we load this worthless food. Wait, is there food or is there not food? I'm confused. And that's what happens sometimes when we complain to God. We just are like, why, God, did you give me the woman of my dreams only for her to loathe me? Why did you give me everything I asked for only for her to be frustrated that, you know, I don't think she's everything I asked for? And all of a sudden you find yourself in this cycle, oftentimes based on this series, the same cycle that your parents found themselves in and their grandparents found themselves in and your grandparents found themselves in. And so you complain and you cycle and even your complaints make no sense, but you just do this. Because you are caught, I am caught by surprise. I forget that even though I may find myself free, freeing of shame that maybe was, was up to my neck, the reality is it's going to come back around. First Peter speaks directly to this when he says, 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We need to expect these trials. We need to expect these cycles. They will help us travel with God, with ourselves, with our stories. And most importantly, I think maybe most importantly, they will help us travel with each other. Because when you see someone who's free and you recognize in a year or two or six months, they may stumble again, you have tons more grace for them, which means they then have tons more grace for you. If you and I could function expecting trials when someone says, hey, you're not gonna believe what I did last night. I feel so ashamed. You're going to be able to have a posture that receives that story because you know somewhere in your story out in the future, there's going to be something that happens that you're going to go, I can't believe I did that. Who we travel with matters. The better we can prepare for this, the better we will endure it, especially when it comes to future-facing faith. If we are going to head towards the cross, you should probably pick other people to do life with and head towards the cross. There was a guy here last service uh, I think it was about a year ago, he told me that he, he picked his friends. That's what he told me. And I didn't really know what that meant. I said, I don't understand what that means. He goes, no, you don't understand. I picked three men in my life, and I said, you, you, you. You're going to be the friends that I lean on with the things that I struggle with. And I believe it's changed uh, much of his relational world. But that also meant he had to go through his phone and go, not you, not you, not you, not you. I don't know the last time you really sat down and thought, okay, who are the people who are going to be in the innermost circle? Who are the people going to, that I'm going to travel with? Who are the people that are going to be future-facing, faith-focused with me? Now, if we're supposed to be in a community of fellow travelers that can shore us up when the sun is too hot and the food is too boring, then uh, that means that we have to probably unpick some people that are going to be uh, a little too encouraging about complaining. Brene Brown, who's helped us with a lot of the material for this series, uh, lists the six types of people to avoid when sharing or traveling through your shame story. These are her six people to avoid. And listen, both services, there were, there were fingers being pointed. That is not helpful. You don't have to point like, that's you, that's you. That's not, that doesn't help anybody. Uh, if you're going to point, do it later, right? Just not in service where everybody can see. The six types of people to avoid when traveling through your shame story. First, the friend who hears the story and actually feels shame for you. She gasps, are you serious? And confirms how horrified you should be. Then there's an awkward silence when she's brokenhearted. And then you have to go and make her feel better because of your terrible choices. You should probably avoid that friend when sharing your shame. Number two, the friend who responds with sympathy. I feel so sorry for you rather than empathy. I get it. I feel with you and I've been there. If you want to see a shame cyclone turn deadly, Brene says, throw one of these at it when someone's sharing their shame with you. Oh, you poor thing. Or the incredibly passive aggressive southern version of sympathy. Bless your heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody had that grandma, didn't they? Just, just yeah. Mm-hmm. Number three, the friend who needs you to be the pillar of worthiness and authenticity. Meaning she can't help because she's too disappointed in your imperfections. You've let her down and now you have to earn your way back into her friendship. All because you shared with her something that you were struggling with. 
Number four, the friend who is so uncomfortable with vulnerability that she scolds you. How did you let this happen? What were you thinking? Or she looks for someone else to blame. Who was that guy? We'll kick his butt. Number five, the friend who is all about making it better and out of her own discomfort refuses to acknowledge that you can actually be crazy and make terrible choices. She says, you're exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. You rock. You're perfect. Everybody loves you, and so do I. Not helpful when you're trying to to, to get someone to come alongside and help bear that burden. Last one, number six, the friend who confuses connection with the opportunity to one-up you. What? You did what? That's nothing. Listen to what happened to me one time. Now, as you think about this, you, you probably could start to realize there's different friends that, that you wouldn't share with in different ways. But you must realize, because Brene adds this as a little caveat for all of us. Unfortunately, please remember, all of us can fall into this way of traveling with others. The undesirable position of not being able to receive someone else's shame story in a helpful way. And the FYI on this is that this is most likely to happen to you and to me when the shame teller's issues are too closely connected to my own. So when someone shares something with me that they're not able to overcome, let's say, and I'm currently not overcoming that same thing, I will usually default to one of these six things in order, frankly, not not to help them, but not to face my own stuff. So this is why all the more reason choosing one's listener needs to be context specific. Think about it, pray about it, be very thoughtful about it. Because when we're looking for compassion, it's about connecting with the right person at the right time about the right issue. All three of those things have to be in alignment for you to share safely the stuff inside your story that hopefully gets you reoriented into a future-facing faith. Now, back to our message. Because the Lord's always going to respond to this level of complaint, right? To when we decide to, to take upon ourselves the situation that we found ourselves in. We, we no longer are in the old bondage. We find ourselves in this new unknown and we blame God for it. In this passage, this is how God shows up. Verse six and seven. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. When your shame cycle and my shame cycle returns, sometimes all you can do is evaluate your consequences and repent. Sometimes when the fiery serpents come, because of the the situation you've put yourself in, sometimes all you can hold is that deep theological space of hashtag my bad. We don't do this enough with God, I don't think. I, think. I don't think very often we like look at our situation and realize, you know, some of this is, is not my fault, but some of this is actually due to decisions that I've made. I can't tell you how many people I've sat with in my office who have listed situation after circumstance after situation after circumstance, all to lead them to the end to go, can you believe this is happening to me? And it's awkward because I'm like, are you asking me a question? And they're like, yeah, can you believe it? And I'm like... Actually, I can. I can believe it. Because after the third DUI, when they took your car, and then you lost your job because you couldn't get there, right? And then you didn't have any money, so therefore you lost your apartment, which then meant you had to live with the friend who's trying to kick you out right now because you don't pay rent and all you do is eat their Pop-Tarts. It makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) 
Now, this is, this is, of course, facetious. Somebody here right now is like, he just shared my secrets, right? I, n- nobody, nobody's eaten anybody's Pop-Tarts that I, that I know of. But if you are, you might want to reevaluate your life choices, okay? If all you do is eat your friend's Pop-Tarts and you, you need to get a job and buy your own Pop-Tarts, that's the, that's the goal of an adult, just so you know. But it's a different series. <laughs> ah. Okay, let's pull it back. Let's just, let's just pull it back. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. We know that God will provide a way through. So Moses prays, right? He's kind of this, this uh, messianic symbol in a sense, right? He's leading the people. So they go to him and they're like, intercede for us. And so he intercedes and he's like, God, hey, these people are repentant. And so it says, this is what happens. Number tw- Numbers 28 verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. What? You want me to make an image of the snakes that are killing people and set it on a pole and then put it in the middle of this moving nation in the desert so so that when people get bit, they crawl with toxins filling their body to look at the snake in order to be healed. And so Moses is like, okay. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Hmm. These are those passages where I just stop and I'm like, God, you are just, are you just making stuff up right now? Or are you just like, how about to fix this different? How do I want to fix this today? Why not just go, no more serpents? How about serpents with, uh, with, you know, no venom. How about make the people impervious to bites? How about just, just stop it, God? How about? But that's never how God works in our circumstances. So instead, he does this that I think is incredibly important for us when it comes to facing our shame cycles along with other trials that we're dealing with. He steps into the actual story and he says, this is how I want you to see me. You're going to get bit by serpents. Every person in this room is going to get bit by serpents. You are going to have trials. You are going to have situations. Some of them have nothing to do with your fault. You're just sleeping in a tent and it comes in and it bites you in the ankle. And some of them are because you were playing with your buddies and you were like, look how close I can get to it. This is awesome. Ah, right. Either one, either one. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to realize there is toxins inside your, your person because of this situation. And I want you to go and find the snake on a pole. And I want you to look at it with your eyes. And when you see it, you'll be healed. Why? First, for these people specifically, it took an act of faith in God's plan for anyone to be healed. They had to believe Moses and the words of Moses And then they had to make their way filled with toxins to wherever this this image was that they were supposed to see. This was an act of faith. And the serpent on the stick as they looked at it was a reminder of their sin which brought about their suffering. So they go and see the serpent and they, they recognize, ah, that's because I didn't believe in the place of the unknown God was bringing me the other place other than here. And God is reminding me this serpent that bit you, it's because of this fallen nature that we all live within because of our own selfishness, because of our own stuff. And then also some of it happened to my life because of somebody else's selfishness and somebody else's stuff. And either way, I look at that serpent. This speaks clearly to the truth that sometimes the most healing thing you and I can do when shame comes for us is turn and acknowledge it. 
to see it and to go, that is hurting me. But there is so much more here, all pointing towards this future-facing faith. And this is where having that faith becomes not just a good idea for overcoming shame as it cycles, but actually God's plan all along. You see, this very passage within it is a very strong intertextual link between the, this one and the one in Genesis chapter 3 that we read when we started this entire series. The one where the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he tempts and she eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam and he eats the fruit and then God shows up and shame has just flooded the picture. And he talks to Adam and then he talks to Eve and then he has a conversation with the serpent. He says this, remember, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says this phrase, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We taught the first week, this is known as the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first gospel. This is predicting the defeat of evil by the victory of Jesus Christ and thus as the first promise or gospel of the coming redeemer. Numbers 21, the story we just read, is being tied back to the enmity between the seed of the woman descended from Israel and the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. It is an entire tieback to the, the conflict that we are going to continue to have as people. The shame, the venom, the toxins, all those things continuing to enter into our body. And unless we recognize where that stuff comes from, decisions we've made and decisions that have been made for us, then we cannot turn and see it. Instead, we'll numb, we'll pretend, we'll, we'll, we'll continue the cycle with our own children, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, in this story, Kevin Chen says the Messiah would not come at this moment, but the Lord provided a picture of what it would be like when he comes in the last days. Jesus himself acknowledges that this story in Numbers is exactly that tied back to Adam and Eve when he himself says in John 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And listen to the poetic, the poetic truth in this, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, that whoever looks upon him, the one who carried all the curses and all the toxins and all the broken, who was lifted up on a cross so that people for generations upon generations upon generations could be filled with the same stuff that I'm filled with and they could find their way to Jesus and they could see him who was the bearer of it all and therefore experience freedom and healing from it just like those people did then. The serpent was to be lifted up as a reminder of the curse but also as a symbol of a future-facing faith in the one who would be lifted higher than the serpent to crush it. This is why this orientation is so important. This is why although nobody here is going to leave fixed, everybody here can leave free. Because of the future-facing faith of our God who puts himself woven within our story from Adam and Eve to the serpent on the pole to Jesus on the cross so that every time the serpents come, whether it's trauma I cause or trauma caused by others, I can find my way, still toxins filled in my body, still hurting, still swollen, still infected, but I could find my way to that symbol and recognize that God promises Jesus would and did come to crush the head of the one who damns me. 
There's a way out. But it's not a way or around. It's through. And yes, the sun's too hot and the food too boring. And yes, you're going to want to complain. But if you travel with the right people, with the right orientation, you may circle for a few years. But eventually you will find yourself in the promised land. When we have a future-facing faith, more than anything else, this is what I want you to leave with today. This future-facing faith changes your priorities and makes the past before you clear, even when all the voices around you might be trying to persuade you this way or that. And here's, the, here's my favorite part of this. It's a powerful tool in all areas of your life and following God's will, not just when facing shame. It's, it's, it helps you to bring clarity to all sorts of decisions that need to be made. Uh, we started advertising, you may have heard uh, the church did, uh, for me to get a new assistant here recently. I'm looking to hire a new assistant uh, right now. Uh, and the reason that's happening is because my longtime assistant, Alyssa, is leaving staff within uh, the next few weeks. Uh, Alyssa has been with me seven years. She's lasted longer than any other assistant I've had by double. That's how profound. Here's a picture of us together. This looks like we went to JCPenney's and had it done. That's not what happened. <laughs> this was actually a random picture at the sound booth a photographer took, but we... <laughs> it looks like we were like, what are you doing? I don't know. Let's go down to JCPenney's and get some headshots. It's so weird. Um, uh, now, Alyssa and I have been working a plan, and that plan was for her to help me uh, do the leadership I need to do in a way that's organized and makes sense. And I've needed her uh, since the day she started, and I continue to need her. But uh, about a little over, well, a year and a half ago or so, Alyssa came to me and said that, hey, uh, her and her husband Kevin were pregnant. And I said, well, that is wonderful. And inside I thought, that does not fit into my plans at all. But Alyssa assured me, she assured me, she goes, Danny, listen, listen, I love this job, I love what we've created together, and so I'm pretty sure I'm going to go on my maternity leave, and then I'm going to come back half-time for, you know, six months or so, and then I'm going to come back full-time, we have a plan, we're working it out, and I was like, that sounds great, and so Alyssa went on her maternity leave, and my world fell apart, and then she came back, okay, and she came back half-time, part-time, half-time, and then slowly, over the months, Alyssa and I were starting to have conversations about full-time, and I could see that, uh, that she was torn about, about wanting to do that. And we started to have a conversation, and, and so finally I said, Alyssa, hey, uh, we're going to have to make some decisions soon because the church is growing and I'm falling behind. And she goes, I know, I know. Let me, let, me, let me see what I can arrange. I'll come back. So she went and talked to all her people. Uh, and then she came back to me. She said, never, this is a rough conversation, but she goes, I figured it out. And I said, you did? She goes, yes, I can make it so I can come back full time. And I said, oh, that's great. And she goes, yeah, but I don't want to. <laughs> and I said, what? And she goes, I, I don't want to. She said, I don't want to miss anything in my child's life. And, and Danny, I don't think I'm supposed to come back to work here. Alyssa had a future facing faith. And it, it was beautiful and is beautiful. And it also introduced me to my arch nemesis right now, this person right here. <laughs> I'm not even going to look at her. There have been many who have tried to take me down. I just want you to know, but this little 14th person right here is the one who did it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
We talk at Kesed about, about being a church family, right? And we also talk a lot about the fact that this isn't just church. Sunday morning, sitting here in our chairs. Church is, is outside these walls. Church is how we live. Church is what we see. Church is being a future focused around the things Christ is calling us into. Let me show you what a picture of a church family looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And when you can have, when we can have, when Alyssa can have a future-facing faith, then we can weigh the things that matter and pay the costs we should. And we can know that we are following God out into the other, out into the unknown, and that that's exactly where we should be. I'm proud of her. She has two services left. She's crying right now, I guarantee it, so I'm not looking at her. But, uh, but God is good. And uh, this is who we are supposed to be as a church. And so I'm proud of Alyssa for living it out. And I love her very much. All right. That's a great, that was a great corner. Let's just go ahead and keep going. Here's how I want to close it. Um, one of my elders sent me an article recently. And right when I got it, I read it and I thought, this is, this is it. This is the close. So I'm going to share this information with you. The article was by John Tyson and David Benner. I want to make sure to give credit for that. But this is what they said. They were talking about what it meant to, uh, to have this future-facing faith. And so they talked about thinking about way out into your future, way out to like, let's say, the last few days of your life. Shame has cycled. Difficult life choices have been made. You have, you have won some. You have lost some. And now you know that this body that you have is depleted and that your story is close to an end. Here's my question. When you imagine this time, what do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? What do you think God is thinking about you as you get prepared to meet him. Benner says, when I ask people to do this, a surprising number of people say that the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. Others assume that God feels anger. In both cases, these people are convinced that it is their sin that first catches God's attention. He continues and say, to say, people think that by default God is disappointed with them. They aren't praying enough, giving enough, serving enough, doing enough. In short, as Pastor Chandra mentioned last week, they themselves aren't enough. This results in a hesitancy to spend time with God and draw close to him. And that makes sense because who loves being around someone who constantly judges them for their failures and reminds them of their shame? But this is not what Jesus reveals about God in the Gospels. Jesus is moved with compassion for the lost. Jesus welcomes the outcast, befriends the sinner, and finds their friend not on the other side of success, but inside their failure. Jesus is not disappointed in us. Jesus is determined to restore us. And this is for you a gift from this guy, Dan Ortland, I think the most important quote of the entire series sits right here. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Do you believe that? Do I believe that, that Jesus' deepest impulse and most natural instinct is to move towards me in love? 
to move towards you in love when you rage, when you lie, when you sneak, when you lust, when you numb, when you hate, and when you blame? Do you believe that he moves towards you? I hope so because scripture constantly reminds us that that's what he's doing. That he is saying, look at me. And I will receive the curse. I will receive the toxins. I will receive the calamity. I will receive the consequence. Come find me. Don't wander around the village looking for somebody else to help you. The only thing we as people are supposed to do, I'll stand up because it makes it more dramatic. The only thing we as people are supposed to do is grab other people's arms as we find them wandering and drag them back to the one who was lifted up on the pole. Do you see him? He's right there. I don't see him. I'll help you see him. We'll get closer. I don't see him. He's right there. I'm going to get you closer. And we get closer and we get closer and we get closer. And together we see he who was lifted up. And together he draws himself to us. Because here's the big fact. You'll never actually make it all the way to the cross. The cross comes to you. But you have to be oriented to it. You have to be future-facing. I have to be future-facing in my marriage, in my parenting, in my pastoring, in my Danny-ing, in just my person. I have to be future-facing, knowing I'll never make it there. But he will pull himself closer to me as I struggle to find him. We must realize this. That when you think about your life, if all you see is failure, inadequacy, and mistakes... That's probably why you cycle as often as you do. Because the enemy uses shame to keep people from God. But Jesus uses mercy to draw them near. Have you ever put that together? That the thing that pulled people to Jesus and still pulls people to Jesus is not his damnation. It's not his articulation. It's not even his foresight and knowledge of all the things you've done and his ability to help you avoid them. It's his love. It's his kindness. It's what this church is named after. It's his chesed. When you know the steadfast love of Jesus, nothing else can hold you. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's his kindness. It's the fact that he's more patient, more loving, more gentle, more truth-telling, more honest, more steadfast than anything you've ever met in your life. He is the healer, and he wants to, to lavish you in love, it says in 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Have you ever thought about God lavishing you in love? That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are in this place kindly lavished in love, not loathing and shame. This is who we are. This is all we have to reach out and see so that whatever cycle comes, we find our freedom in he who's waiting at the very end of it all, to meet us, not because we found him, but because we called upon his name, Scripture says, and he was there. This is a sacred place right here, so we're just going to sit in this for a second. We're, gonna, we're just going to feel whatever it is that God's doing in the room right now. This is not on my script, so... I... Uh, I had a couple about a month ago, an older couple, asked me if I, they, I would renew their vows after a Sunday morning. Uh, I had a lot of stuff going on. I didn't know them well, but uh, they said it would be really important because they met here in this church. 
and they, they wanted to have their, their vows renewed, just them, and uh, I think it was a daughter and a granddaughter. And I said, okay. So I came in and I stood here just in my normal, you know, my normal preaching clothes, and, and, I, and I took a, uh, somebody else's wedding that I just pulled up on my iPad and just swapped names. And it was special, and it was emotional, and I was like, I'm really glad I did it. On the way out, the older gentleman said, uh, I really appreciate that. That meant a lot to me. I, uh, I, uh, my body's filled with cancer, and they say I, I don't have long. And I never really know what to say in those spaces, so I just held the space with him, and I said, how are you? And he just kind of smiled like, like I'm ready. And I thought, okay. So we hugged, and he left. Um, Friday, I got a, a text during a dinner with my family that this gentleman uh, got a lot less time than they thought and that he was in hospice and they wanted to know if I would come and see him. And so I, I, I came to the hospice house and his wife was there and his daughter were there and, and he was very close at this time. And, and I don't know if you've ever been around someone that's really, really close, but um, this shell that we all live becomes um, a, very, a very broken thing, a very, uh, very captured thing. And so I prayed with him and I prayed with his wife and, and I sat there and I thought, you know, the very best ending I could imagine for me, the very best ending I think I could offer anybody here right now would be that. That we would end up inside our bodies, completely, uh, you know, ravaged, whether it's by time, whatever it is, with our families, with somebody like me coming to pray a, a really inept prayer for a situation like that as we prepare to go and meet our God face to face. That's the best. So would you have a future facing faith and you imagine your last day, like I've been imagining mine. Don't you wanna live the life that God has given you right now so that when that time comes, when that family's around, they can know, like I knew from that family, that this was a life of a person that lived seeking after God. Don't we wanna know that? but we have to decide that now. I got a call last night that he passed. Now, I don't know how that all works up there, but I have a feeling, I heard he was a drummer. They said he was a drummer throughout his life and that he had golden drums. And I thought, I thought very, very 70s of him. And, uh, and I thought how powerful it would be if, if like Jesus just met him with a set of drums. I, I, think, I think God's going to meet us all custom. I believe that. I believe he's going to meet you exactly how you're supposed to be met. And, uh, and I know that he is at peace, but I know that his story, I hope, reflects and resonates and ricochets all around this room so that you and I can ask bigger questions about our life, about our future-facing faith, about the fiery serpents that are going to come, but about the one who was lifted up so that we can carry each other to there, not shaming one another for struggling, but instead becoming a house that loves and lavishes one another with love. And it is costly. Churches like this are costly because they bring all these people that like other churches don't want. That's who goes to our church. I don't know if you figured that out yet. Oh, but it is really beautiful, really beautiful. And I'm so thankful that God, uh, that God brought it for us. I, um, I love you guys and I love this, this time together. I love the struggle and the strife and the trial. 
But more than that, I love that I know I can count on you and you can count on me and we together can bring all the other people that nobody else wants. Bring them to church, build our families and invite them to dinner and just be together as we continue to become the people God has called us to be. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? We're going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is your space. This is where you do what you want to do. I ask God that in this room, people would be marked. They would would have revelation about areas in their life that you're asking them to give up or set down or recommit to. They They would see the people in their life as fellow travelers, not burdens. They would be willing to point towards you You who were raised up for my sins, my toxins, my brokenness. I'm forever grateful, Lord, that that I can live within this shell of a body that you've given me and bring glory to you with it. Thank you for the others that are traveling alongside. Thank you for the stories. We ask for a future-facing faith in the one who overcomes. We lift all of it to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. God bless. See you soon.